Hey guys, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money for your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Crime Candy Podcast. Sorry, I've been feeling under the weather for the past couple weeks, but I decided here's a new episode for you guys. Um, so before we start, I just have to go over a little bit of history on the topic that I'm doing. So radium had been discovered just 20 years earlier by French physicists Marie Curie and Pierre Curie, and its properties were not well known. Because it had been used successfully in the treatment of cancer, many considered radium a miracle element and a variety of commercial products were manufactured in which radium was an ingredient, including toothpaste and cosmetics. So from 1927... Sorry, something happened with my iPad. So from 1917 to 1926, U.S. Radium Corporation, originally called the Radium Luminous Material Corporation, was engaged in the extraction and purification of radium from carnotite ore to produce luminous paints which are marketed under the brand name Undark. The ore was mined from the Paradox Valley in Colorado and other Undark mines in Utah. As a defense contractor, U.S. Radium was a major supplier of radioluminescent watches to the military. Their plant in Orange, New Jersey, employed as many as 300 workers, mainly women, to paint late radium-lit watch faces and instruments, misleading them that it was safe. Undark, it was a blended mix of glue, water, and radium powder, but the key ingredient was approximately 1 million times more active than uranium. The luminous material was furnished to each dial painter in small tubes, one at a time. At peak production was nearly 55200 dials per year per dial painter. Until 1920, the dial painters were allowed to eat at their workstations without washing their hands. The women hired to paint dials came to be known as ghost girls because the radium dust to which they were exposed daily made their clothes, hair, and skin literally glow. Many of the women wore their best dresses on the job so the fabric would shine brilliantly when they went dancing after work. Some even applied the paint to their teeth because it gave them radiant smiles. What is more, the painters ingested a radioactive substance as part of their jobs. Because some of the watches dial on which they were worked were extremely small, they were instructed to use their lips to bring their paintbrushes to a fine point. When they asked about the radium's safety, they were assumed by their managers that they had nothing to worry about. Of course, that was not true. Radium can be extremely dangerous, especially with repeat exposure. Marie Curie suffered radiation burns while handling it, and she eventually died from radiation exposure. Other researchers also perished.
So why would so many women risk their lives for this job? Because dial painting was the elite job for the poor working girls. It paid more than three times the average factory job, and those lucky enough to land a position ranked in the top 5% of the female workers nationally. Given the women financial freedom in a time of burgeoning female empowerments, many of them are teenagers with small hands perfect for their artistic work, and they spread the message of their new job's appeal through their friend and family networks. Often whole sets of siblings worked alongside each other in the studio. In one such plant, the workers received several cents for each dial they painted and typically painted 250 dials per day, producing a weekly income of 20 to $25. That might not seem like a lot, but back then that was a ton of money. It is estimated that these women would ingest approximately 4,000 times of radium, radium in a matter of six months. The first thing we asked was, Does this stuff hurt you? May Cuberly asked. Naturally, you don't want to put anything in your mouth that is going to hurt you. Mr. Savoy, the manager, said that it wasn't dangerous and that we didn't need to be afraid. The dial painters and other workers were aware of their deteriorating health conditions as early as 1917. However, it took the medical profession until the mid-1920s to document the incidence of diseases, in part because U.S. radium executives urged doctors to attribute deaths to causes other than radiation poisoning. Syphilis was often cited to smear the reputation of these women. Among the first was Amelia, or Molly, as she called to be called, Magia. I am very sorry if I mispronounced that, which I probably did. Um, who painted watches for the Radium Luminous Material Corps in Origin Material Corps. In Orange, New Jersey, in, in Orange, New Jersey, in 1922, she had to quit the studio because she was sick. She did not know what was wrong with her. Her trouble had started with an aching tooth. Her den, her dentist pulled it, but then the next two started hurting and had to be extracted. In the place of agon of missing tooth, agonizing ulcers sprouted as dark flowers, blooming red and yellow with blood and pus. They seeped constantly and made her breath foul. Then she suffered aching pains in that were in her limbs that were so agonizing they eventually left her unable to walk. The doctor thought it was rheumatism. He sent her home with aspirin of everything. By May 1922, Molly was desperate. At that point, she lost most of her teeth and the mysterious infection had spread. Her entire lower jaw, the roof of her mouth, and some of the bones in her ears were said to be one large abscess. But worse was yet to come. When her dentist prodded delicately at her jawbone in her mouth, to his horror, in shock, it broke against his fingers. He removed it, and I am very sorry if this is disgusting, but this did happen, not by an operation, but by merely putting his fingers in his mouth and lifting it out. So let me repeat that for you. 
when her dentist prodded delicately at her jawbone in her mouth. It broke against her fingers. He removed it, not by any operation, operation, but by merely putting his fingers in her mouth and lifting it out. Let that sink in next time you don't want to He's right, you want to go to the dent you need to go to the dentist. So only days later, her entire lower jaw was removed in the same way. Yeah. On September 12th, 1922, the strange infection that had plagued Molly for less than a year spread to the tissues of her throat. The disease slowly ate its way through her jugular vein. At 5 p.m. that day, her mouth was flooded with blood as she hemorrhaged so fast that her nurse could not staunch it. She died at the age of only 24. And the doctors were incredibly flummoxed as to the cause of her death. So her death certificate said she had died of syphilis. Which makes no sense, but okay. Dentists were among the first to begin seeing numerous problems among the dial painters. Radium jaw was a condition of dental pain, loose teeth, lesions and ulcers and the failure of both of two extractions to heal dial painters frequently suffer from suppression administration and sterility if pregnant they were born with stillbirths or terminations of pregnant pregnancies as the doctors would not permit development of the fetus quotation marks additionally therefore extreme deformities and body structure fractures and shortening of limbs in growing numbers, other radium girls became deathly ill, experiencing many of the same agonizing symptoms as Magia. For two years, their employer voraciously denied any connection between the girl's death and their work. Facing a downturn in business because of the growing controversy, the company finally commissioned an independent study of the matter, which concluded that the painters had died from the effects of radium exposure. Surprise, surprise. But, of course, refusing to accept the report's findings, the company commissioned additional studies that came to the opposite conclusion, and it decried the girls who had taken ill, that they all got sick from syphilis. The young woman's employer, USRC, denied any responsibility for the deaths for almost two years. After suffering a downturn in business because of what they saw as gossip, they would that would not go away. In 1924, they finally commissioned an expert to investigate the rumored link between the dial painting profession and the women's deaths. Unlike the company's own research into radium's benefic ben benefits, this study was independent, and when the expert concluded the link between the radium and the women's illnesses, the president of the firm was outraged. Instead of accepting the findings, he paid for new studies that published the opposite conclusion. He also lied to the Department of Labor, which had begun investigating about the verdict of the original report. 
Publicly, he denounced the women as trying to palm off their illnesses on the firm and decried their attempts to get some financial help for their mounting medical bills. With the report hushed up, the women's biggest challenge was proving the link between their mysterious illness and the radium that they'd been ingesting hundreds of times a day. Though they themselves discussed the fact that their work must be to blame, they were fighting against the widespread belief that the radium was safe. In fact, it was only when the first male employee of the radium firm died that exposure that experts finally took up the charge. In 1925, a brilliant doctor named Harrison Martland devised tests that proved once and for all that radium had poisoned the women. Martland also explained that what was happening inside their bodies as early as 1901, it had been evident that radium could harm humans dramatically when applied externally. Pierre Curie once remarked that he would not want to be in a room with a kilo of pure radium because he would believed, because he believed it would burn off all the skin of his body, destroy his eyesight, and probably kill him. Martland discovered that when the radium was used internally, even in tiny amounts, the damage was many thousands of times greater. That ingested radium had subsequently settled in the women's bodies and was now emitting constant destructive radiation that honeycombed their bones. It was literally boring holes inside them while they were alive. It attacked the women all over their bodies. Grace Fryer's spine was crushed, and she had to wear a steel back brace. Another girl's jaw was eaten away to a mere stump. The woman's legs shortened and spontaneously fractured, too. But no, that literally could not have been caused by radium. It was all the syphilis doing all this. Um, so one such employee who I, was taught, who I briefly mentioned earlier said her spine was crushed was Grace Fryer, an 18-year-old New Jersey woman who worked at U.S. Radium from 1917 to 1920, when she left to take a better job as a bank teller. Fry had begun to lose her teeth and develop painful infections in her jaw. When she visited the dentist, radiographs showed that her jaw was decaying, developing a moth-eaten appearance. She visited doctors, but not one could explain the cause of her problems. Soon, other young women with similar problems were turning up in doctor's offices in New Jersey, and long, before long, it became apparent that they all had one thing in common. They had been employed by U.S. Radium. In 1925, Fryer began looking for an attorney who would take her case, but it took two years before she found a young attorney who would represent her. So in the meantime, Grace was visited by Frederick Flynn, a specialist from Columbia University who conducted an extensive exam of Grace and her case. He informed her that based on his expert opinion, she was, in fact, fine. Any problems she might suppose herself to be suffering, he determined, cannot be attributed to U.S. radium. <laughs> so only later did it emerge that the specialist, I'm using quotation marks here, was, in fact, neither licensed to practice medicine nor even a physician. He was a toxicologist on contract with U.S. Radium. Based in part on her physician's conclusion that employment at U.S. Radium might be a factor in the rare but similar cases that were cropping up in New Jersey. 
for I was unpersuaded by Flint's conclusions and continued to attempt to convince others of the truth of her claims. So, early in their 1920s, Cecil Drinker, who had later become the dean of the Harvard School of Public Health, had been asked by U.S. Radium to investigate the working conditions of the company. So, Drinker's report submitted to the company in 1924 concluded that the workforce was being contaminated by radium, that a few former workers had developed blood disorders, and that at least one chemist had developed areas of necrosis on his hands and elsewhere. Here is an excerpt from his original report. Dust samples collected in the workroom from various locations and from chairs not used by the workers were all luminous in the dark room. Their hair, faces, arms, necks, the dresses, the underclothes, even the corsets of the dial painters were luminous. One of the girls showed luminous spots on her legs and thighs. The back of another was luminous almost to the waist. However, when his report reached the New Jersey government, it had been altered to the state that the company's employees were in good health. Later, another Harvard professor, Alice Hamilton, learned of the case. She wrote to Drinker's wife, Catherine Drinker, Ph.D., to alert the Drinkers to what U.S. Radium and its president, Arthur Roeder, have been up to. Mr. Roeder is not giving you and Dr. Drinker a very square deal. I had heard before that he tells everyone he is safe because he has a report from you exonerating him from any possible responsibility and the illness of the girls. But now it looks as if he has gone still farther. The New Jersey Department of Labor has a copy of your report, and it shows that every girl is in perfect condition. Do you suppose Roder could do such a thing to issue a forged report in your name? The drinkers were outraged, and Cecil Drinker published his original report in a scientific journal over the objections of U.S. radium. The company also appears to have participated in a misinformation campaign attempting to tarnish the reputations of the radium girls by suggesting their complaints were attributable attributable to syphilis. So now to 1927, Grace Fryer finally found an attorney, Raymond Barry, who would take her case. Four other former employees joined the case, Edna Hoosman, Albania Larice, Quinton McDonald, and Catherine Schaub. Shope, or Shope. So I'm very sorry if I mispronounced any of these ladies' names, especially any of the family members um, or descendants. I'm very sorry. Soon popularly dubbed the Radium Girls, they sought compensation in the amount of $250,000 each for their injuries, which does not seem like a lot. Back then, that probably was a lot of money. The first hearing took place in January of 1928. By this time, two of the claimants were bedridden, and none were able to raise their arms to take the oath before giving their testimony. As the case moved forward, U.S. Radium requested a delay because several of its employees were vacationing in Europe. Oh, that's so nice. The judge agreed, and the Radium girls were told they would have to wait until September before the case would, hurt, would be heard, which is not great because, unfortunately, these women are all dying from radiation poisoning. Um... But this case actually made international front page news because of its one of the one of the few of its time because it's a huge labor dispute. <laughs> so a Barry and the girl, five girls agreed on an out of court settlement just days before the case was about to go to trial. Each girl received 
only $10,000 as well as an additional $600 per year until death. And I'm sure for a lot of them, that wasn't for very, that wasn't very long until they would have fortunately died. U.S. Radium would also pay for all medical and legal expenses in addition to all future medical expenses. It was later discovered that the judge of the trial was a stockholder in U.S. Radium. So I was actually able to find a case where a family of a deceased member took a case forward to a to a judge to a, a for injuries and compensation on their behalf. Um, so essentially, this principal question in this suit the, was whether the plaintiff, in an action at law for damages caused by injuries to the plaintiff's interstate and her subsequent death, is entitled to an injunction restraining the defendant from pleading the statute of limitations as a bar to the plaintiff's alleged cause of action on the ground of equitable fraud. Essentially, they want to know if they can, from what I'm understanding, if they can get any compensation for the damages her working at this plant caused while she was alive. So the the plaintiff's interstate or deceased was Irene F. Laporte. The she was employed by the defendant, the U.S. States U.S. Radium Corps, from May fourteenth, nineteen seventeen to December 11th, 1918, and for a brief period, not over six weeks, in 1920. So, she was one of 80 girls who worked for five and a half, five and one half days per week in a large factory room, ventilated by a skylight and by windows around the room. The windows were regulated by any of the girls who saw fit to do so. They worked at four rows of tables, extending practically the length of the room, each girl worked a few feet away from the girl next to her and a few feet away from the girl at the opposite end of the table. Each girl procured a tray containing 24 watch dials and the material to be used to paint the numerals upon them so that they would appear luminous. The material was a powder of about the consistency of cosmetic powder and consisted of phosphorus zinc sulfide mixed with radium sulfate. This compound was contained... In a small vial, about an inch and one-half long and about the size of an ordinary lead pencil in diameter. The powder was poured from the vial into a small porcelain, porcelain crucible about the size of a thimble. A quantity of gum arabic as an adhesive and a thinner of water were then added, and this was stirred with a small glass rod until a paint-like substance resulted. Over a working week, each girl painted the dials contained on 22 to 44 such trays, depending upon the speed with which she worked and used a vial of powder for each tray. When the plant light substance was produced, a girl would employ it in painting the figures on a watch dial. There were 14 numerals, the figure 6 being omitted. omitted. In the painting, each girl used an exceptionally fine brush of camel's hair containing about 30 hairs. After painting the brush after it was then dipped into the paint the figures painted upon the dial until more paint was required or until the paint on the brush dry and the hard hardened when the brush was dipped into a small crucible of water this water 
sorry, lost my place. This water remains in the crucible without change for a day or perhaps two days. The brush would then be repointed in the mouth and dipped into the paint or even repointed in such a manner after being dipped into the paint itself in the continuous process. So when they mean repointed, essentially is they would dip it, put it on their put it in their mouth, and then use their teeth to pull make it to bite on it to essentially make it into a fine point. Some girls painted an entire dye with a single pointing of the brush. Some repointed the brush after each numeral. The evidence shows that the descent was in good health at the time she left the employ of the defendant. In April 20, 1921, the descent was married to the plaintiff. Her health remained excellent up until the autumn of 1927. In the later part of 1927, the descent, or the deceased, complained of a fear that she might have radium poisoning. She delayed visiting her dentist for some time because other persons who had radium poisoning had demonstrated symptoms like those from which she suffered. The descendant, constantly associated with, these, with those persons who were suffering from the radium poisoning, and frequently discusses danger and symptoms with them, her husband, and sister. In the spring of 1928, the descent had a tooth extracted that troubled her. She told her dentist she had hesitated to go to him for fear she might have neuradium necrosis. Her dentist reassured her, and for the time being, she appeared to be in good health. So, for the latter half of 1928 to October 1930, she was treated by a doctor, and she complained continually of pains in her face and jaw, and frequently discussed radium poisoning. She, convinced, she was convinced she was a victim. In October 1930, she began to have pains in her legs and joints. Dr. Harrison S. Martland, the chief medical examiner of Essex County, New Jersey, determined the descent was a victim of radium necrosis on October 15, 1930. So at the time, Dr. Martland read x-rays taken of the descendant's jaw Decedent's jaw in 1925 as showing typical areas of radiation osteotysis. On May 4, 1931, she first presented a claim for damages to the defendant. The descendant died June 16, 1931. Dr. Martland performed an autopsy and confirmed his diagnosis that the descendant had died of occupational radium poisoning in the watch dial industry. Dr. Martland found radium deposited in the bone structure of, of the descendant. On January 10th, 1933, the plaintiff insti insti oh my god, I'm sorry, in This suit in equity to enjoin the defendant from setting up the statute of limitations as a defense to the plaintiff's action at law. There is no question but the paint but the dial painters at the time the descendant worked in the defendant's factory ingested radium sulfate contained in the paint, with which they worked by pointing their brushes with their lips and that they breathed and swallowed radium sulfate contained in the dust in the air of their workroom. 
The dowel painters were protected by neither special methods or devices nor specific scientific ventilation. In this case, the plaintiff contends that the testimony tends to show an admission which involves a breach of legal duty, an admission which involves a breach of confidence justly reposed, and an admission which involves a breach of legal and equitable duties and by which undue and conscientious advantage is sought to be taken. On the contrary, the court is constrained to find that in 1920 and up to 1924, in which time a two-year period of limitations would have elapsed, there was neither knowledge of an occupational hazard in the dial painting industry, nor in the light of the knowledge concerning radium, reason for the defendant to believe or to have known of the hazard. The defendant could not have known under duty to disclose the hazard, which so far as it or would the or the world knew, did not exist. In 1920, it is a fact that dial painting was not known to be a hazardous occupation. It, is only, it was only shown to be in some time in 1924 or thereafter. It was only shown to be in... To demonstrate the case, this case, the court must consider the knowledge concerning radium existing at least prior to the end of the normal period of limitations. All the learning of the scientific and medical world after that time, including the fact, which is now admitted by everyone, that the occupation was highly dangerous, is not relevant per se to the issue. So another way of stating this case, in its final analysis, is that in 1920, the head of the Defendant's Research Bureau had failed to carry its research to the conclusion which scientific and medical experts later accepted. With some reluctance, after several of the cases of neuradium necrosis have been carefully studied. Indeed, it is fair to say that until Dr. Martlin established the cause, it was only by the process of elimination that suspicious pointed, suspicions pointed to the radium as the troublemaker. It can be said that this is a case wherein both the plaintiff and defendant were ignorant of the existence of facts which may have constituted a cause of action. The reason for being the fault of neither medical fault of neither medical and scientific knowledge had failed to discover the dangerous propensities of the occupation. The statute of limitations had and its expectations were neither were not conceived for this extraordinary situation. No one had has even attempted to controvert the fact that Dr. Bloom, Dr. Hoffman. Dr. Drinker and the defendant itself found reason to suspect the danger in 1924. The Dr. Martlin established it in 1925, but that several of the most eminent men in radium could not escape his conclusion as true until later. There are no suggestions to the contrary, even by the plaintiff, but at any rate, the court is compelled to accept the opinions of the expert witness. To that effect, and the literature which which fully corroborates these opinions, and the fact that no one reported cases existed prior to the one with which the defendant's attention was brought early in 1924. So going back to 1920, there was no knowledge that an occupational hazard existed in dial painting. Whether it wouldn't, whether or not it could have been established, if the radium experts had put themselves to the specific task is a matter of conjecture. Medical and scientific opinion concerning radium was going through changes, slow in process, which, which were the result of an increasing number of experiments. There is nothing on which a finding of negligence 
and failing to discover the dangers in the industry could be based. There is another serious question which, which should be briefly considered, but the decision of the court makes it unnecessary to determine it. It is that of whether the conduct of the decedent and the successors to her alleged cause of action constituted latches which, which would prevent the patient, plaintiff, excuse me, from enjoining the defense of a statute of limitations, even if the defendant were guilty of equitable fraud. It should be remembered that the defendant was unaware of the descendant's existence after the 1920, that the descendant firmly believed during 1927 that she was a victim of radium poisoning, that in fact she had the common symptoms of the disease experienced by other cases which, which whom she frequently associated, that she had taken x-rays in 1925, which Dr. Martland read in 1930 as showing typical areas of radiation osteitis in her jawbone, that after 1927 she intended dentists and a physician and related her fears to them but was reassured by them that she continued to suffer from the manifestations of the disease that on october 15 1930 dr martland diagnosed her trouble as radium poisoning that a claim was made against the defendant on may 14 1931 for the first time that the descendant died on june 16 1931 and that the action at law was commenced on May 17, 1932. It is a well-settled rule in equity that in cases of fraud, the time limited within which the action must be brought will not commence to run until the discovery of the fraud or until the complainant was in a situation where, by the exercise of reasonable diligence, he would have discovered the fraud. Accordingly, it must be contended that this rule should be invoked against the descendant and her successors in view of the evidence. The action at law was not commenced until June 16, 1931, while Dr. Martland did not diagnose her case until October 15, 1930, and a physician and dentist assured her that she did not suffer from the radium affliction she knew of her own experience that she was suffering from the usual manifestations of the disease as she had the opportunity to observe. It was more than the suggestion of fear in her mind that troubled her. She had suffered the progressive effects of the disease. Her associations with known victims with whom she had even visited the office of the radium experts when they were being treated significant in determining whether she was using reasonable diligence in establishing her true condition which was probably discoverable as early as 1925. The plaintiff contends that the descendant did voice her complaints and suspicions to at least one doctor and dentist as early as 1927 or 1928, but was assured by them that they were unfounded. This lends force to the argument of the defendant that in fairness and equity, it could not be charged in 1920 to 1920 with the anticipation of the dangers and hazards attendant upon its industrial use of radium in the infinitesimal quantities in which it was incorporated in luminous paints. So in 1925 and 1926, nationwide publicity was given to the discovery of radium poisoning as the cause of the ailment from which several of these dial painters suffered. In the face of this, in the direct statement by the descendant that she suspected she too was a victim, her own doctor and dentist in 1927 were unable to diagnose her trouble. Under such circumstances, can her employer be charged with the responsibility 
of anticipating such dangers on the light of the learning of the years of 1920 to 19, sorry, 1917 to 1920? Naturally, there is no question as to whether the sympathies, sympathies of any human being would lie in a case of this sort, but a court has no power to judge the law which has been enacted to meet the needs of a time when no such case as this could be foreseen. This is an extraordinary case even today. The statute of limitations was enacted for the purpose of protecting the public from fraud. Its ends were desirable and necessary, and in the infinite variety of cases that come before the courts, that is still true. The responsibility in this case can only be laid to the tremendous progress made in science in the last four decades. Radium was unknown prior to 1898. The development of the law to meet such contingencies must lag their discovery. So, legacy of just this whole radium's, radium girl case can't be taken lightly because... This essentially starts the creation of OSHA, which then had never existed. And this is one of the first in which an employer was made responsible for the health of its company's employees, which before then was never heard of. So it led to life-saving regulations and ultimately to the stabbing of OSHA, which I said. OSHA, which I said. And before this, OSHA would... 14,000 people died on the job every year before OSHA was existed. And in 1949, U.S. Congress passed a law which gave workers the right to receive compensation for occupational illnesses. Um, and I am going to post some, if you guys are interested, I'm going to post pictures of the victims and such. I'm... I'm debating whether to show any of the injuries they suffered. I don't know if I will or not, because that's not what this podcast is. Um, you guys can look up if you want. Be prepared to be disgusted and gross, because they are very disgusting what happened to these women. Um, and the Instagram is crime underscore candy. And it's, that's the Instagram. And I hope you guys have a good week.